Welcome to the Trainer's Bullpen, where trainers in the law enforcement space come to hear experts talk about their work, experience, and research into human performance, particularly as it relates to the critical aspects of training motor learning and crisis decision-making. The purpose of the Trainer's Bullpen is to help bridge the gap between law enforcement training and the findings of academic research and current pedagogical best practice. Our desire at the Trainer's Bullpen is to help advance law enforcement training, make research applied, and improve officer and public safety. The Trainer's Bullpen is a production of Raptor Protection, and I'm Chris Butler, your host. Now, on to today's show. Welcome to Episode 8 of the Trainer's Bullpen, Building Adaptive Decision Makers. All law enforcement instructors would agree that one of the core functions of police skills training is to develop great adaptive decision-making skills in our officers. The question that must be asked is, what is the relationship between the instructor-coach feedback method and the development of independent adaptive decision-making, and are there proven techniques that work better than others? In this interview, we talk with decision-making expert Dr. Joel Suss about several critical components of training that should be understood and implemented in order to accomplish these important training objectives. Topics covered in this interview include recognition-primed naturalistic decision-making, the use of effective probing questions to get inside the student's head, the effective use of storytelling, and the application of the seven cognitive skills to guide the student to understand, assess, and correct their own decision-making and performance. This interview contains helpful, practical insights on how trainers should consider adjusting their training methodology to improve officer performance. And today, it's my pleasure to welcome back to the trainer's bullpen, Dr. Joel Suss. Originally hailing from Australia, Dr. Suss received a bachelor's degree in kinesiology in 1997 and a bachelor's degree with honors in psychology from La Trobe University in 2006. He moved to the USA where he completed a PhD in applied cognitive science and human factors from Michigan Technological University in 2013. He was a postdoctoral researcher in cognitive engineering lab at Université Laval in Canada from 2014 to 2015, before joining the faculty at Wichita, Wichita State University in 2015, where he serves as an associate professor in the Department of Psychology. His research interests focus on understanding and improving perceptual cognitive performance, such as anticipation and decision-making in complex and challenging operational settings. Law enforcement, security, military, command and control, aviation, and emergency medicine. Dr. Suss investigates ways to train police officers to make better decisions in stressful situations, and he is the author of 24 journal publications, although Dr. Suss, I believe that should be 25 journal publications now because you and colleagues just recently published an excellent paper in the Journal of Police and Criminal Psychology titled Using Biological Motion to Investigate perceptual cognitive expertise in law enforcement use of force decisions. So congratulations on that recent publication and welcome to the trainer's bullpen. Thanks, Chris. Thanks so much. And thanks for having me back. Yeah, absolutely. So um, when we last spoke, Dr. Suss, we uh, 
kind of parked a, a very important conversation, and that is the issue of feedback and, and the importance of feedback and how to give feedback in a training or coaching environment. And it was so important that uh, we both felt it was necessary to set this as an entire podcast topic. So, um, and so on feedback, you know, I think for law enforcement trainers, our goal is to be able to develop very adaptive professional decision makers who are able to quickly assess what's going on, extract the relevant cues from rapidly unfolding, ambiguous, high consequence events, and then hopefully make accurate and good decisions uh, in response to that. So what can you uh, tell us uh, just kind of by way of a beginning of what would, how does feedback, um, like why is feedback such an important aspect of that cognitive development decision-making process? And why should trainers be so focused on this area? Right. So I think that feedback's really important because I, I think of it from a perspective of deliberate practice. And one of the, the tenets of deliberate practice is guidance training under a coach who's able to, to give you the feedback that you need to push you to the next level. And most of the time, even though people might like to think that they can give themselves their own feedback, and to some extent they can, if you really, really want to get good, you kind of need ex um, extrinsic feedback from, and explicit feedback from an expert coach who's really who can see things from the outside and can get you to think about things in ways that are going to get you to develop and enhance your mental models of these kind of critical situations and, and time-constrained, complex situations. And doing that, like I said, needs some kind of feedback, not just about the outcome of your performance, whether it was good or bad, like whether, you know, uh, using lethal force in a particular situation was the right thing or not. That's that's feedback that's focused on the outcome. But there's also feedback that you could give about the process of getting to that point. But getting to understand the process, what someone went through, which is essentially what happened in their head, is not as easy to come by as just observing what they did and commenting on their movement or how they drew the weapon or their positioning or their use of defensive tactics. Does that make some sense? Yeah, absolutely. And so just two things I want to ask in relation to what you just said, uh, because I think that's very important, is I, I can already hear some trainers saying, well, I give feedback. I When my students make errors, I see what they do wrong and I tell them what they've done wrong. And uh, then they fix it. And but that's entirely not the type of feedback that that we should be focused on, is it? Like you use the term, we want to get inside their head, and we want to find out how are they thinking, how are they analyzing and assessing the information. And so that's uh, that's point number one. And point number two is that um, the outcome, as you said, is never the measure of whether decision making was good or bad, especially in, in the law enforcement world, because cops don't, don't always or hardly ever control the outcome. And so we can actually have 
And I've seen this, Dr. Suss, I've seen a, a, a positive outcome where decision-making was horrible, but only because yes. of, of providence or good luck, nothing bad happened. And so then the danger is you walk away from that, reinforcing that what you did was actually good performance, but it was it was very dangerous decision-making. And so the outcome isn't the measure, is it? No, and, and that's, that's interesting because I um, participated in some police training a couple of years ago and I, I was very um, surprised to see that as soon as the scenario finished, it was it was simply a matter of did you achieve the right outcome? So the scenario was set up that someone presented a lethal threat, and so if the person, if the officer who was engaging in the scenario shot the person, then they did the right thing, and then that was it. And it was kind of as if as soon as they made the shot, and neutralize the threat, that it was kind of, you know, dusting themselves off, clapping the hands, hands over, well done, good job. And there was no reflection on the process. And it really, really surprised me because I, I thought that in some of the people who I saw go through this, I didn't think that the process was um, the best that it could be. Let's put it that way. But there was no... There was no focus on that, and I, th I think that that's concerning. And so I think that this this idea of getting at what's inside someone's head is really, really valuable, especially if you want to make those independent, adaptive decision makers. If your goal, contrary to that, is just to make robots that follow procedure and carry out things A, B, and C, and essentially can't think for themselves, then sure, don't don't bother about delving into this feedback and trying to find out what went on in someone's head. Uh, but if you do want to make those really excellent people who can then in turn maybe take some of this stuff and reflect on incidents that they're involved in themselves and kind of analyse them themselves, then I think that what we're going to talk about today is a, a really useful step towards that. Okay, great. And uh, I'm excited to get into this. One of the things that um, I'm I'm kind of shifting in my terminology only because when I think of, you know, what I'm hearing you say and other researchers is uh, we, and we often call ourselves law enforcement trainers, but I think in that sort of in that entrenched methodology or philosophy of training, it's, it's like we push uh, information into our students rather than really what a law enforcement trainer should view themselves as is a human performance coach. You're a human performance coach. And so, and that, you know, as your job, if you understand that, then it kind of shifts your mindset around how do I give feedback and how do I develop excellent decision-making in my officers when, let's face it, I'm not there out on the street at two in the morning when they're dealing with a situation. Uh, so they need to have independent, adaptive, excellent decision-making. So, Great. Let's let's get into this uh, then, Doctor. So, so how can how can we think about if we want to think about feedback getting into their into their heads into their minds? How can we think about feedback during say decision making scenarios or drills? How how should we we start there? Right. So um, you you said something just now that made me think uh, that I just want to make a little introduction to this that. You know, people might be thinking of, oh, getting into someone's head and understanding their thoughts, we've got to do some kind of 
brain imaging or um, electroencephalography, right, EEG, putting some cap on someone's head with wires to, to get at what they're thinking. Um, that's, I guess that that's possible, but that's not where I come from. And that's not my um, kind of training or specialty. So the way that I look at it is simply, it's talking to people and asking the right questions. Um, an, an old term from psychology is introspection, right? Looking into yourself and getting at what's going in your head. But this is now doing it with like a coach, asking the right questions to extract this kind of information. And why that's important is because often people think, and I'm sure you've heard it, right? Oh, I didn't think during this, you know, during this incident or scenario, I didn't think, I just made decisions. I just, you know, everything happened so fast. But in spite of that kind of feeling, I think that it's still possible to get at what did go on inside someone's head and break it down, kind of slow, slow things down and look at things in detail because by and large, I'm convinced that lots of things do happen even if it's in a very short space of time. And I look at it as my job or the coach's job as to the skill is extracting that information and getting and getting people to use it to understand what they did and understand how to get better. So um, one kind of fancy term for this um, overarching thing is cognitive task analysis. And when we talk about cognition, that's a big word and it kind of is confusing sometimes. The thing to focus on is cognitive is kind of the opposite of procedure or rule-based um, performance. So yes, police officers need to learn procedures and they need to learn if if this, then that. But we're talking about cognitive as a, as a kind of higher level. So it involves decision-making, how people make sense of situations, detecting and diagnosing problems, prioritizing and trading off goals, managing attention, anticipating future states and performing shortcuts or, or workarounds. And so this cognitive task analysis is really just a way, uh, a principled way of getting at those kinds of aspects of people's thinking. And we often think about responding to a physical incident or to an incident as a physical act, right? There's a lot of talk about heart rate and adrenaline and parasympathetic nervous system. But there's also a lot that goes on cognitively. It's just not as visible to us as someone moving around and when they put their hand on their weapon and when they draw and how they give commands and if they're at the low ready or high ready. So we're looking at a different aspect of performance than the things that are just intrinsically visible. And there are many, many tasks that involve cognitive aspects, right? Chess is a task that's mainly cognitive. There's very little motor movement around. But police responses in scenarios and complex situations combine both the cognitive and the physical. And so those are the kind of thinking activities, or that's the way, the way of getting at these things is asking people the right kind of questions to extract information from them to learn how they were processing the situation. Okay, and is this cognitive task analysis, Dr. Suss, is this something that's relative relatively new? Uh, or or where did this where did this come about? Where where do we find the origins in this approach to studying decision making? 
Right, so cognitive task analysis in and of itself is kind of as a collection of tools or it's a toolbox of tools um, and it can involve lots of things, right? These kind of um, talking to people methods, but it could also involve experiments, um, surveys, different kinds of uh, tasks that help you understand what's going on in someone's head. And that that kind of collection of that toolbox, cognitive task analysis as, a, as an area, that's been around for a long time, um, decades. But I think the thing that's most relevant or the aspect of it that's most relevant to what we're talking about comes from a field called naturalistic decision-making. And that came about um, in the late 1980s, really yeah and so that's probably the focus of what we've got to talk about naturalistic decision making and um it it came about as a reaction to lab-based studies of decision making that might take place in universities often using novices so we're talking about um, undergraduate students as participants and using relatively simple decision making situations where you know here are two options, uh, what would you choose? And that's not to say that um, that research isn't useful. If people are familiar with um, Daniel Kahneman's thinking fast and slow, that kind of research led to Nobel Pri a Nobel Prize for him. Uh, but there was a bit of a reaction to that situation because people thought that some people thought that that doesn't really capture what goes on in the real world um, in terms of you know, police, military, uh, firefighters, pilots, nurses in ICU war in ICU wards who need to make who need to understand situ complex situations very quickly and make decisions. And so, this area of naturalistic decision making studied those kind of people in uh, in those kind of situations. Okay, and so when I hear you say naturalistic decision-making, where my mind immediately went to is uh, the work of Dr. Gary Klein and and recognition exactly. prime decision-making. So is there, what's the connection between naturalistic decision-making and recognition prime decision-making? Or are those two terms really referring to a very similar process? Yes, it's, it's referring to a very similar process. And I I hope Dr. Klein, um, if he hears this, won't think that I'm butchering his work. Um, I hope, hopefully I'll, I'll do a decent job of explaining it. But um, the naturalistic decision-making you can kind of think of as the field that, that took this approach to study decision-making and recognition prime decision-making was a model, a descriptive model of decision-making that came out of the research that he and his colleagues did. So it's kind of, in essentially, it's one and the same thing, but recognition prime decision-making is a, is a model that, that, that is a kind of summary, I guess, of the kind of research or, or, the, or the findings that were extracted from the kind of research that he did. And the way that they studied these decision makers uh, many times was to use something called the critical decision method. And that's, again, a fancy term. What does it mean? It's essentially storytelling with probe questions. So this critical decision method has four main, what you'd call sweeps, four main stages. So first of all, you'd sit down with, with someone, an, an, an operator, 
a police officer, a firefighter, and you first identify an incident where that operator faced some decision challenge. So the first thing is you're not looking at something that's straightforward, easy incident to deal with, something that's very procedural. You're looking for something that's quite complex because you want to understand how they dealt with that complexity in that situation. So the first thing is maybe looking at a few incidents, asking them to come up with a few incidents, describe them very, very quickly, um, and then focusing on finding one of those to focus on in more detail. And so the sweep to the next stage would be establishing a timeline for that event and putting down the major um, events that happened within it and at what times they happened and actually doing that on paper, sketching it out on paper. And then the next sweep or the next stage is called the deepening phase. That's using probe questions to get at critical cognitive aspects. Now, what are these kind of things? Because this is really where the rubber meets the road. This is where the, the person who's running this, the, the researcher, or in our case, the coach, would be asking the right kinds of questions to get at different aspects of the situation. There's kind of a laundry list of questions, of, of deepening probe questions that you could ask, but I think the real skill is understanding what to ask when during this process, because you can't ask all the questions all the time. Otherwise, it's, it's already a long process and it would just take hours or days. So I'll, I'm going to list off a few different kinds of things that you could ask, and uh, but there's a longer list. So one of, one of the key things is asking about cues. So what were you seeing, hearing, smelling, noticing? And you never really want to put words in people's mouths. You want to, you're asking open-ended questions to, and letting the people, the, the, the person who was involved in the incident, the decision maker, you're letting them do the talking, most of the talking. And so one of those things, right? What were you seeing, hearing, smelling, noticing? That's getting at cues. Another thing is information. So what information did you use in making this decision or judgment? How and where did you get this information? From whom? What did you do with this information? Another is goals and priorities. So what were your specific goals and objectives at this point? And because um, I find that people don't think about goals and priorities that much, and I think it's a very valuable thing to look into. And so it's really interesting to note that oftentimes there may not just be one goal. It may be very common that you have multiple goals at the same time, right? You might want to protect yourself and protect bystanders, or you might want to communicate with someone, but you might want to protect yourself by getting behind cover. And so at some point there's going to be prioritization of those goals, right? Saying that one is more important than the other. So what was the most important to accomplish at this point in the incident gets at that prioritization. And so uh, I, I could go on and on with different kinds of probe questions, but they're essentially uh, the kind of things that you'd ask. But depending on what aspect of the, of the incident is interesting, and what, what are your goals as well? What do you want to try and understand from the incident? So you go through that process and you might do that for different decision points during the incident because incidents typically you know, take place over time, whether it's a short time or a long time. 
And there may be what we call different decision points where critical information has come up that changes the way that you see the situation and then the way that you interact with it. So you might go through this process of deepening questions for several different decision points. And finally, the sweep four is asking what if questions. So examples of those are, what if this had been someone less experienced than you dealing with this incident? What might they have got wrong? What might they have not picked up on? What might, how might they have seen the situation and not seen what you saw? And then another kind of what if question could be, well, what if something about the incident changed? So I would come up with something that changed. What if you didn't have this piece of information at this moment? How would that have changed things? What would you would have done? What would you have done then? Would that have made things more certain, more uncertain? And how would you have handled that? So I'll I'll stop there as a kind of general um, this critical decision method, a description of that. Yeah, that was very helpful. And one question I want to ask you when you mm -hmm. mentioned about goals and objectives is we sometimes we'll see officers get themselves into trouble situations either from an officer safety perspective or from a, a legal perspective, when what happens is they make decisions that set them on a trajectory. And then as the, the event changes, so if say this is a scenario and as the, as the coach or the trainer, I'm inserting different inputs into it because I want yes. them to recognize that now they need to adapt and have different goals and objectives, uh, but they fail to do it. So is this a helpful process to mine an officer's thinking process to find out, did they not pick up on those cues? If they did, how did they evaluate them? Why didn't they change? How were they assessing the risk? What are your thoughts on that? Yes, I think that this is um, this is the kind of way to do it uh, and, and asking those questions. So I've, I've been able to do this with police officers um, in, a, in a scenarios or after scenarios. And that's that's a, a question that or an aspect that we'll save for later because this critical decision method is typically sitting down. It, you know, it, it's a long process. You wouldn't go through this whole entire thing immediately after a scenario because it just takes too much time. Um, I think it's amazing for getting at these things, but there's uh, there's kind of quicker ways of doing the same thing. And it's just kind of cutting things down. But essentially, yes, asking those kind of questions. So, you know, at this point in the scenario, what do you recall seeing? And, uh, you know, you can find out were people seeing this thing? And if they don't mention it, you can go, well, do you recall? You, you can then push and say, do you recall noticing that this happened? Oh, no, I didn't. I didn't see that. Uh-huh. Well, if you would have seen that, would it have changed your mind? Would it have changed your goals and in, in what way? But then like what you're talking about, if people did see something and they still didn't adapt to it, then I think it's really important. I think this is a really good way of getting at, well, why didn't you adapt? If you did see it, I put that in there. I injected that into the scenario. As your coach, I put that in there because I intended for it to change your goals. I intended for you to adapt. And so what in your mind didn't let you do that? Because we need to work on that and we need to work out a way, you know, of, of 
maybe it's even discussing that it's okay to let go of a particular goal, right? Sometimes um, people have that bias to just hold on to what they've been doing, right? And no, no matter what's kind of a sunk cost bias, right? I started off on this path and I kind of committed to it and I've got to keep going, even if things are kind of going downhill. And I think one of the skills for decision makers in, the, in these kind of situations is one part of being adaptive is when the situation changes and goals should change, you should then change your goals and priorities and, and give up on something if it's not the right thing to do anymore. Okay, you mentioned biases. And so I wonder yes. what your, your thoughts are on, because one of the things that I think will happen to officers is, is especially, and, you know, ironically, I see this happen perhaps to the even the more expert or experienced officers is because they have such powerful heuristics is they end up going down this pathway. And now when there's a, a, a flare, as it were, that should be screaming at them to go, no, like this is different, but they don't see it or they can't see it or they won't see it. Is is that because of, uh, is heuristics sometimes making us blind to those cues, those anomalies? Or oh, I, I think, um, you know, for me, uh, I'm just thinking about this from an, a little bit of an academic perspective. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about heuristics and biases in lots of different situations and using them kind of as post hoc explanations for why people did things. And I think that in general, that's a bit of a dangerous thing to do. So I'm, I'm not saying that it's not a valuable way of thinking about things. Um, I, I, I can't say, oh, yeah, it's because of this bias that someone did that. I think that you know, you you alluded to kind of biases making people blind. I'd I'd more tend to look uh, to resort to something like attentional narrowing or peripheral narrowing that you know people get locked on something tunnel tunnel vision, if you will, and they have not learnt how to lock onto something, but at the same time keep and I use this term interrogating their environment. And so, and I, I use that not in terms of, you know, interrogating a suspect, but in terms of the, the decision maker being the active person, the active part of this in, in scanning or interrogating the scene in front of them for valuable information, because things change all the time, different aspects. Someone can walk in, someone can walk out. You might notice something that you didn't notice before. And if you're locked on the person, the person's face, and you're kind of looking through that, that soda straw, then that makes it difficult to pick up other information. So it, it, it may not even be, it, it may be more that um, it's an attentional thing, and I think one skill and part of what, what we're going to talk about, one of these cognitive skills is managing your own attention. And I think that's a really important thing because once you understand that it's not just, it's not just you relying on things to pop out of the environment and grab your attention, it's your responsibility to look for those things and be aware of those things and that they can come up anytime. I think that kind of, puts a different spin on things for people. Right. And again, your earlier comment about developing the skill of introspection, that if 
if this is the process in training and this is what we encourage, then that almost develops that habit of mind to be constantly introspective of evaluating your environment and how you're responding to it and what you're picking up and, and the meaning of the information. Yeah. And, and the way that I think about it is that, uh, and I want to be really clear for your listeners, right? I have not been a police officer um, and I don't, I don't pretend that I know exactly what they go through, but um, in these kind of situations, I think about it as the situation is trying to trick me in some way. And, and what I mean by that is that I may not be perceiving things accurately. And that might be because I haven't picked up on some key bit of information that's there. So I kind of have it in my mind that whatever I think is happening right now, that's what I've got to go with. I've got to go with that because that's that's what's there. At the same time, where I can, I'm trying to keep like a trying to keep the door open for the for the possibility that things might be different than I'm expecting that than, than I think that they are right now. So I might be looking for information that might lead me to discover that the situation is different if it really is. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it totally does. And and I appreciate you saying that. And I think you're exactly right. I recall back before I was a, a law enforcement officer, I spent six years in high angle search and rescue. And I remember one of my coaches, first coaches in, in as a SARTEC, uh, taught us two things. He taught us to have a continual script running in our head that there's something here that I'm not seeing that I'm missing. And so what you think, you know what you see, but you don't know what you don't see. And, and the second one was to ha have a, a healthy dose of self-doubt about, and not 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 meaning being underconfident or, or not right. having confidence in your capabilities, but self-doubt in your, in that you know exactly what's happening. Um, and, right. and so I think those two things in that environment. And certainly for me, I transferred that into 28 years of law enforcement. And I think just that those two skills really helped me not get locked into being so set in a certain trajectory and missing critical information and, in the environment. And I think that there's, from the, the broader studies of naturalistic decision-making in lots of decision-making situations, that's especially in intelligence analysis, um, which which seems like far removed from the kind of police situations that we're talking about. But it's kind of the same thing, right? You get a bunch of information coming in. The real situation is perhaps unknown, and all you've got is accused information that's coming in. And so you build a story around those cues that makes sense because you're trying to make sense of the situation. But at the same time, you've always got to have that healthy dose of doubt that like this is the best story that I've got at the moment that matches the facts, but there could be a different story, right? I don't have all the facts. Um, and the way that I'm putting this story together, I sometimes call it like a constellation of facts, right? You've got a constellation of stars in the sky and you've got these, um, you know, names for constellations, but that's kind of dependent on the stars that, that you see and, and, and you know, the, the picture that you draw, but someone could draw a different kind of picture. They could join the dots, if you will, in a different in a different way. And I think 
just keeping that in mind that that's that that's a possibility and your job really is to avoid being tricked by the the situation like i kind of see i kind of see the the opposition as not being the suspect the opposition as being the entire situation and the situation can be trying to pull the wool over my eyes right in in some way by by focusing my attention on something and making me miss other other important things and i don't want to be i don't want to feel like an idiot later that i missed those things so i want to kind of keep the door open and, and just be aware that there might be other things to, to pick up and focus on okay great i want to ask you about you mentioned about questions and how the the coach or the trainer needs to be careful about how many questions they ask and how long it goes so you know, what would your advice be? Because I, I can envision watching a high fidelity scenario unfold and, and having a laundry list of things in my mind. And then the debrief runs for 30 minutes afterwards. And you know, yes. they, they've shut off listening to me after the first two or three minutes. <laughs> and and uh, so what would your advice be? Would you, would you say to coaches and trainers, like, like, you know, pick, you got to prioritize. So like, what would be the critical yes. top I don't know what three, four things that you want to provide feedback on, or or what would what would you say to that? It's, yes, so um, it's really interesting that you said you know it, it can go on for a long time because it, it could, and a lot of scenarios, training scenarios, might only last a couple of minutes, right? But the the way I look at it, the the gold in that is the time that you take as a coach afterwards to to go through this kind of process and give uh, elicit this kind of thing and it's it's kind of getting the person to understand or the the trainee to understand their own thinking and it's not um it's it's maybe even less of the coach giving feedback as the coach asking questions so that the trainee gets it kind of gets them in the in the trend of thinking about these things so that they can think about them for themselves when they're on the street when the coach isn't, isn't there or after they've been in an incident on, on the street so um yes you could take half an hour i don't see people uh, uh, as getting kind of bored and there are their eyes um glassing over because they're the active part of this they're the one who's who's doing the most talking. It's not the coach, it's the trainee. But I do take your point that you know you don't want it to go on for half an hour. What things to focus on? There's this laundry list. Um, there's there's really about seven things that you can think of uh, cognitive skills or activities to focus on, and you couldn't focus on all of them even after one scenario. It would just take too long and one thing that I do want to mention is if let's say you've got a, a class of um, students of trainees and they're all doing the same scenario. I don't think that it's necessary to focus on or to ask the same questions of every trainee necessarily. I think that the, the trainer needs to get the coach needs to get to a situation where they're going to ask the questions that are best going to help that trainee in that moment, in that moment, with their experience, move to the next level. So, after saying all that, let me actually answer your question. Focusing on 
uh, sense making. So how are they sizing up the situation? So at this point in the situation, what did you think was happening? What were you focusing on? What were the cues? And when I talk about cues, right, that could be things that they see, uh, smell, hear. But the next level to that is not just what did you notice, but it's what did that thing mean to you? How did you evaluate it? Did you think it was a threat? What meaning did it have to you? Because just stopping at the cues at what did you notice is it's leaving out a lot of stuff because different people will see the same thing and assess it or evaluate it differently. So that's one thing that I think is really important. Another thing I mentioned previously was about goals, goal prioritization. So identifying trade-offs, so identifying the most important priorities within complex situations and, and with competing demands, and then trying to help people understand, well, how did you prioritize those things? You said that at this point, your goals were this and that. Well, you could ask, why were your goals this and that? Some of it might come down to law, right, that, that police officers need to know. Well, my goal was was this, to 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 arrest the person or detain the person at this situation. Why was that your goal? What about the situation led that? And that may, may lead you into a conversation about the law and the legal aspects behind it and kind of lets you check their understanding of the law. Another thing that we've spoken about is attention management. So, so do you remember looking around? Uh, you know, what were you focusing on? How were you scanning the environment? Do you recall getting locked in and just kind of tunnel vision at some stage? Did you try to break that? How did you break that? And uh, another thing, maybe the last thing that I'll, that I'll mention at the moment is the decision-making part. So when you came to make a decision about what you would do, how you would respond, what course of action you would do, um, what kind of things crossed your mind? Did you consider different options? How did you, did you compare different options? Why did you choose the one that you did? Why did you think that that was, was the way to go? Did you play it out in your mind? Uh, you know, briefly before you did it. So that's kind of on the fly very quickly as you're in the situation. Did you think about if I do this, what's the likely thing to happen? How's the suspect going to react? What, what's my next move going to be essentially? How, how is my decision and my action that I intend on carrying out, how's that going to change the situation? And am I ready for that? Because if I'm, going to just do something and I haven't thought about the consequences of it, that may not be such a good thing. I'll pause there and, and let you speak. So those you referred to those, I think, as cognitive skills that yes. you just that you just mentioned. And you so you mentioned so you mentioned sense sense making. What were you sense focused making. on? Uh, yep. what did it mean to you? Uh, number yes. three was goal prior prioritization. Uh, four yep. was attention management. So we want to know what were they focused on? What were they looking at? What did they miss? Five is decision making. Um, yes. And uh, uh, and also ask finding out not only why did they make the decisions, but are they thinking consequentially? In other words, if I do this, then what are the like, likely consequences or subsequent acts from that, yes. that decision? So th and those are five. Is there more? Um, there there are, there are a couple more. Um, there is anticipating future states is another thing. So um, I think we spoke about this last time, but 
you know, one of the things that expert athletes um, do is they're able to anticipate what their opponent is going to do in advance of what their opponent is going to do. So think about, you know, dodging a punch or putting yourself in the right position um, to return a tennis serve or if it's baseball, um, reading reading the pitch and knowing what kind of, of pitch it is. Ice hockey, because you're in Canada, right, you're a goalie and you're trying to work out someone's taking a penalty shot and you want to try to work out where that shot's going to go, where do you have to move and cover. So anticipating future states is something that is kind of a hallmark of expertise. So could you anticipate in the next couple of seconds what's going to happen? And because if you can, maybe you can act to change that so that it's going to be to your betterment. And if not, maybe you can put yourself in the best situation so that, that you're positioned and, and kind of ahead of ahead of the curve. So that's anticipating future states. And then another thing that you might want to consider ask people about is workarounds, performing workarounds, because there's lots of standard operating procedures in law enforcement. People are often expected to follow rules and procedures, but they can't cover every situation and so sometimes i'm not saying that people should break the rules all the time sometimes you might need to be flexible and know know when to bend and when to kind of step out of a certain procedure because the situation demands something different and so knowing when to do that and how much to do that is also a, a skill Right. I think that is a very important skill for law enforcement officers because training and policy just provide guidelines and, and fence lines. But I think some of the best adaptive decision making that I've seen officers do, that they've been able to know when it's appropriate to make decisions that may not be completely consistent with policy uh, in order to be successful and in the public's interest and in, in the officer's uh, interest. So I think that's important. I want to ask you about your opinion on, so the questioning, so so we've got yes. this mo this model, okay, this critical decision method with these seven critical skills. So if, let's say I'm watching a scenario, it, yes. would it be your advice to just let the whole scenario play out and then do one debrief at the end or might there be value is if I see a critical point in a scenario is pausing it let's say for example officers have decided to make an entry into a into a person's house um, and, and I decide well I'm going to pause that there because that to me that's a critical uh, decision and I want to yes. capture what they're thinking in that moment like so what did you see why did you make the decision to enter the house what is what is your authority under law to just enter a, pr a private dwelling is there value in pausing? Because this is a debate in the law enforcement training community where we have two camps, which is no, I never pause a scenario. I just let it run yes. out. And others who love to pause scenarios and ask those questions at critical points as it unfolds. Right. And I I think there's a time and place for both, which is it's easy to say, right? I, I get the best of both worlds. Um, and I don't, I don't have really any guidance of when it's when you should do one or the other. I think it, it can become a problem if you only ever do one or the other. And the way I like to think of these, um, this kind of questioning and developing people in this way is it's a really, really iterative process. So 
if if you're thinking if as a trainer or a coach you're thinking about how can I do this once for a trainee in their whole you know recruit training that's not the way of I don't think that that's the way to think about it I think about how can I do this kind of thing as many times as possible whether it's you know smaller snippets sometimes and longer ones other times just how much can I get people to look at what they're doing and look at these kind of these cognitive skills. So I don't think it's it's bad at all um, to, to pause it. I'm going to tell you about something that I've done before um, several times, but I've done it more using video scenarios than, um, than live action scenarios. And that is that I'll record, I've, if I do it using video, whether it's a, in a simulator or whether it's using body-worn camera footage, um, from the person who actually, you know, from the trainee wearing a body-worn camera or whether it's using body-worn camera footage as a, as, as just something to prompt decision-making, like decision-making exercises. So I have done that several times where I'll pause it. I'll identify a priori. So in advance, I'll identify decision points like what you're talking about before someone's going to go in or when some critical information has has appeared, and then I'll pause it, and I'll so I'll stop people, and I'll ask them questions about exactly like why are you thinking about doing this? What have you? What's your understanding of the situation up to this point? What are the things that you've picked up on the critical cues? How did you put them together? You know, what are you thinking of doing? How do you think that the situation might play out in the next few seconds? And then restarting them and going into the next bit. Um, but I've also done it where I've just had people in um, video simulations, let them run through the whole thing, and then I will play back part of the video until a critical point. And so they don't interact with it this time anymore. They just stand, observe. We get to that critical point. I pause it on the screen, and now I'll go into my into my questioning. And so there's many ways to slice and dice this. And I think that the key thing to keep in mind is how am I helping the trainee develop their mental models so that they're going to be these independent, adaptive decision makers. And you can always flood people with feedback, right? You can see them doing something wrong as a, as a coach and go, oh, I'm going to stop them here. And let's let's take this apart because I don't want them to, to make mistakes. But you know, there's there's a trade-off between you know sometimes people need to learn through making mistakes and reflecting on them. And the the other thing to consider is you don't want to be doing this and stopping people ten times in a scenario. That's gonna that's gonna kind of hamper their learning. I I think so. I, I look at this as how can I do this a lot during the course of a training program, not how can I, how much can I do it in the course of one scenario? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And as I'm listening to you talk, I'm also thinking I see a lot of value for this method, the critical decision method, using the seven cognitive skills in 
for example, a shift briefing, because I mean, I think I wouldn't want our trainers to think we're just talking about when you have the big training event, you've got everybody there. But at the beginning of a shift briefing, where you've got your team of officers beginning their shift, if you were to show a brief video, and then use this this method, even if it was 10 or 15 minutes, but if it was structured, and you work through this, these seven critical skills with your team, I think that the learning value in that would be immense. Yes, and so that I know that that kind of thing happens in in some police departments. There are some people who who do that kind of thing, and I think structuring it in a way is the way to do it. And so maybe this is this is the time for me to say that there are um, technologies that are used to deliver this kind of training, and there's a, a few different ones out there that at least I'm aware of. So one is, you mentioned Dr. Gary Klein before, so he has um, something called Shadowbox, which is which is a way of, kind of, you know, doing this online. And you can do it, um, I should say that it's, yes, you could definitely use a video, like body-worn camera video, but you can also do this as a, as a written scenario, right? You can do it in a really low-tech way. You can give people information. On paper, you can do it as a sandbox exercise, a tabletop exercise. Um, so you're not just constrained by by technology. If you don't have the technology, you can still do really good decision-making exercises, right? People have been doing this for hundreds, probably thousands of years. Um, technology can help, though. So um, yeah, this shadow box um, tool is one that's out there. Um, there's another one called Patrol Expert. Uh, from a company called Polis Solutions that's out there that is kind of designed, again, to, to structure this kind of thing. I think one of the, the really important things is um, this kind of method and this kind of approach is giving people, the trainee, expert feedback. So you elicit all this stuff from them, but at some point you as the trainer have to communicate the expert's perspective. And this is often tough in law enforcement because if you get five experts around the table and show them an incident, you might get seven different opinions of, of what's the right thing to do, right? But having said that, generally, if you get experts together and looking at a situation, they'll coalesce on some main some main themes. And so they're the kind of things that you 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 want, the kind of things that experts won't really argue about. They'll all they'll all agree on. And then Really, the goal in this kind of thing is to change the trainee's thinking to be more like an expert's thinking. When I say that, I mean getting them to size situations up like an expert does. What would an expert notice and how would an expert assess things and put things together? What would an expert consider when they're considering the course of action um, to do or, or which course of action would they settle on and why would they do that? What What's leading them to, to land on that specific course of action? And really, that's the way to enrich trainees' mental models by getting them, trying to get them closer to the experts' mental model, the way experts see things, the way that they attend to things, the way that they prioritise tasks and goals. That's a critically important point. I'm so glad you brought that up because the the our objective 
And I think we get tripped up on this so often in law enforcement is we want, you know, I'm right. I'm the expert. Therefore, you're wrong. And I need, therefore, what you do needs to look like what I do. But if that's our our perspective, we've completely missed the point is we want yes. them to think the same way as an expert thinks, even though they may arrive at the end at a different conclusion than I do. It doesn't mean I'm right and they're wrong. It's the quality of decision-making that we want to focus on. And I think, you know, to your point, that's where these seven cognitive skills, if we can really utilize those through this decision method, that's how we can help build these adaptive decision-makers. Right. And and it's really a matter of the people thinking for themselves. And I think what happens a lot is that they end up going, oh, I saw the situation like this and I approached it like this, but through the expert, I can see now, I can understand that this you know, expert or very experienced officer, they saw things completely differently. I thought that I had this down and I understood how to do all this stuff and I was doing okay. And, and it's not trying to it's not trying to tell people that they're not doing okay and that they're hopeless by, by any stretch of the imagination, but it's kind of getting them to go, oh, I'm not picking up on everything that the expert's picking up on. And I'm not sizing things up and evaluating things that way. I've got work to do. That's that's really the thing, right? I've got some work to do. And I see that there's a kind of path forward or there's 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 room for me to grow um, because I want to be like this expert and kind of see things the way that they see it and respond um you know, with the quality of, de of decision that they come up with, I want to be like that. And so I've got to consider these kind of things. It's not just so easy as going, yep, that was my gut instinct. That was my intuition. Yep. Okay. I did it. And, you know, I'm done. No, there's, there's more to it. And the more that you do this, I think, you know, you're, you're trying to expose people to lots of different situations so they can understand the kinds of information that they might be looking for, the kind of cues to attend to in different situations, the kind of goals that they may have to trade off and the priorities that they may have to consider in different situations because you're never really going to land in the same situation that you were in in training. That's kind of highly unlikely. But you're trying to have a high degree of transfer that through experiencing a lot of these situations and thinking about them deeply from these perspectives that that kind of thing is going to aid you when you come up you know against a novel situation a novel complex situation there's something that you can draw on from the training that you've experienced and the situations that you've experienced that's going to help you it's really about getting to a stage where you've experienced so many different situations that there's a degree of pattern matching which is really what the recognition prime decision model is about that in some situations you'll be able to look at it and go, ah, this kind of fits into this box. I've seen this kind of thing before. I Now I can classify it as a X situation, as a, a domestic violent situation with these variations. And yep, I know, I know what to look for. I know that this kind of thing might happen. These are my, these are my goals. I don't really have to think too much about my goals because I know already what they should be. And I know that I've got to accomplish this and that, but I'm going to prioritize this one. And this course of action may be the best one. Does that kind of thing make sense? 
Absolutely, it does. And it sounds like as you speak about variability and the importance of variability and training to address all of these different possibilities, is it really, so I've heard of deliberate practice before. Is this sort of along the same lines as de deliberate practice or is there a difference? Um, no, I think that this kind of comes under de deliberate practice in that you're, you're trying to, you're not the opposite of deliberate practice, right, is just um, practice. Think about it as practicing the things that you're already good at, right? And so that's very comforting sometimes, right? I'm good at doing this. I practice it. I'm confident. I feel confident. But deliberate practice is really trying to focus on the things that you're less good at, but the things that are going to move you to the next level, the things that are going to make a difference and lead to improvements in your performance and so one of the ways to do that is by not just doing routine situations and things that you're comfortable with it's putting yourself or being put in situations that stretch you that where you you you'd actually be expected to not get things right all the time because you're learning and when you're learning you, you make errors. And I think there's a kind of uh, popular story that I remember from the deliberate practice research. You think about, take ice skating, for example, and you ask someone, so who, fall, who falls more in practice? The people who are really, really, really good, world champions, or the people who are at a level below that? And the way to think about it is that it's the people at the very, very top, the world champions who are falling more. Why? Because they're trying the things, the tricks that are pushing them more, that, they, that they're trying to reach a higher level, the more complex things and the things that are harder to do and the things that they're not good at yet. And so you kind of expect to fall sometimes, but when you fall, you learn, you hopefully learn what you did do right and the next time you'll make you won't make that mistake again and you'll get better and better and better so that's kind of the analogy that i think of so some sometimes people want training to be all about wins and feeling good and developing people's confidence and i'm all for those things i think those things are really important but if you look at any field and you look at the people who are the best the highest performers in those fields You'll find that they're doing that they're they're either making for themselves or they've got a coach that's helping design deliberate practice activities for them that purposefully put them in situations that they're not comfortable in, that are making them, that are forcing them into these situations where they learn what kind of decisions do I have to make, these uncomfortable situations, what kind of things do I have to trade off? What are the cues, these subtle cues that may be really hard to find? that I've got to be aware of. So that that ability to become comfortable with discomfort in, in training and in learning, though, the, I mean, that that goes to the heart of, it has to be a psychologically safe environment for our students to be able to yes. do that. And I think this is an area where we have a lot of work to do, uh, Joel, in law enforcement, because so many of our training cultures are, uh, is, the perfection is the goal. If you make a mistake, you're a fool. Um, you, you know, and so the the trainers need to just create a, a culture of, look, I've designed this 
this this training to be very difficult and you will make mistakes and that's what we're here for we're all here to learn from our mistakes and to grow from those and it's got to be a psychologically safe environment to do that in um and, or, and yes sorry i didn't mean to cut you off yeah no you go ahead i was i was just going to say i i agree i agree completely and people who aren't creating that environment where people feel safe to make mistakes for want of a better word or, or get things wrong and then improve, right? Get a chance to do it again and get better. They're, they're just not going to be developing these, you know, adaptive independent decision makers. I think I'm, I'm pretty confident in, in saying that it's got to be this kind of safe environment that you're talking about. But at the same time, it's not that you're, you want people to screw up and make mistakes. It's just that, you know, I think it's really worthwhile explaining to people, to trainees, that dealing with these kind of situations is really complex. And no one, like, thinking that someone is going to get everything right, um, especially all the time, is just not it's just not true. It's not a it's not a good way of thinking about things. It's it's better to probably think about getting getting them as right as you possibly can, given that they're complex, ambiguous, time constrained, uncertain situations. You're not the perfection is probably not the thing to aim at. It's 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 doing a good job. And trying to cover as many bases as, as you can. I'm not saying that perfection is, you know, not a good thing to achieve, but in these kind of complex situations, um, it it might be that might not be a, a reasonable goal. And so, you know, it's normal for people to not get things right, and there's always room for improvement. And so, how it, I want to put a trainee on the path of trying to achieve that improvement or always trying to improve and thinking about how could they have done something better. And that applies to them looking at situations that they encounter out on the street when they may not have someone to, you know, a, a coach there, right, to go back over things with them. But you yourself, the officer, has the opportunity to go back and maybe you attended it with someone else, the call with someone else, and you can speak with them about it. You can get into the habit of kind of asking yourself these questions. Or you, if you've got body-worn camera footage of the incident, you can go back with a trusted, uh, you know, trainer or supervisor, and go back, and they they can be that coach who goes back and asks you you those questions. But this is something that people, I think, should learn to do for themselves, because there won't always be a coach there, and I think you'll find that the people who are really good, in really good performers do this kind of thing anyway by themselves. They may not do it uh, in this formalized way, but they'll do this kind of thing. They'll do that retros retrospection, uh, reflection after the incident sometime and go, what could, they, they won't just go, okay, outcome's fine, everything's good, nothing to improve. They'll be the ones who say, okay, like it went pretty well, um, you know, but what could I have done better? There's always something that I could have done better. What could I have done better in this way? And it may not, it may be they could have done it better from an officer's safety point of view. It could be that they could have done something better from the citizen's perspective. They could have left the citizen uh, with a better taste in their mouth at the end of the encounter or something like that. But they'll ask themselves, 
those questions. Um, do I have time to make one other point about that? Sure, we got a couple minutes left, so why don't you make your last point? Yeah, so the way as a trainer that I really respect um, in Wichita, in Wichita, Kansas, um, he made me think about this a few years ago. Most of the time, trainers, coaches, never put themselves in the situation that they're asking their trainees to do. And what I mean by that is they don't get put in a situation, in a scenario blind where they don't know what's happening and they just have to deal with it. And I'd encourage trainers to think about that uh, and think about how they would do if they were the trainee thrown into a situation where they don't know all the injects and all the things that the cues that have been put in there and what is meant to happen and the learning objectives. And that might help them think about how a trainee sees things. And I think that it's really good to ask yourself and be really realistic. How good is my, how perfect is my performance going to be if I'm in that situation? Because if you're expecting perfection from your trainees and you were put in that situation, ask yourself how perfect your performance would be. And if you really want to test it, get your fellow instructors to set up a situation for you blind that you and get them to put you in it and see how perfect your, your performance is, would be and consider you know, whether it's possible for you to learn and get better after doing it that first time. I think I'll leave, I'll leave that point there. I think that could, that's an excellent advice. And it would be uh, two things. I think a very humbling experience to keep uh, us as trainers in, in our, in having a correct perspective. And also, again, looking at it through the shoes of our students who are going through these scenarios. And that will only help how we do this critical feedback method and how we use the the cognitive skills is if we have that common ground from understanding that. So Dr. Sis, we're at the end of our time. I really want to thank sure. you for coming onto the trainer's bullpen to talk about this critical issue of feedback and how important it is to really help develop adaptive, great decision makers in our law enforcement officers. You've given us a lot to think about, about the critical decision method You've spoken to us about the seven cognitive skills and how those can be used as a template to be able to apply this feedback method. You've given us some resources uh, with respect to where we can go and, and look up some other information and, and get some other. Is there anything else that you would like to, to leave the trainers with where you would say, hey, this is after you listen to this podcast, this is where you should go to take the next step for learning about this, this method? Yeah, um, I think that there's there's a book called Working Minds, and that's a really good book in general about cognitive task analysis. And it, Gary Klein is one of the authors of that book, and it's it's called Working Minds: A Practitioner's Guide to Cognitive Task Analysis, and that's got more about the critical decision method and doing that kind of long. Um, you know, with those sweeps that I mentioned. But in addition to that, there's a few papers um, by Gary Klein about cognitive skills training. Now, they're not going to be accessible to everyone because they're often behind paywalls. But 
if your listeners want to contact me, um, I'm happy to, to pass those uh, papers on to them. Um, but there's one called Cognitive Skills Training, Lessons Learned by Gary Klein. That's in a journal called Cognition, Technology and Work. And, yeah, that, that's probably a, a really good one to look at. And it's a relatively short paper and it's pretty uh, readable and accessible by, by practitioners. And you mentioned for our listeners to be able to reach out to you. They always appreciate the opportunity to connect directly with the experts. So how can our listeners get in contact with you, Dr. Suss? So I think the, the best way is just by, by email. And you can find me at Joel Suss. It's J-O-E-L-S for Sam, U for uncle, S for Sam, S for Sam, at gmail.com. Excellent. Excellent. Well, again, uh, Dr. Suss, thanks for making the time out of your busy schedule to come on to the trainer's bullpen. It's been a delight. And uh, I've got some other ideas of uh, where we could expand on this in future podcasts, if you're willing to come back on. But thank you so much for what you do. Sure. Thank you, Chris. It was it was great talking with you about this stuff and happy to discuss this and other topics in the future. Excellent. Thank you. Take care. Well, we hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Trainer's Bullpen. As always, our encouragement to you is that you would think critically and deeply about the critical aspects of this interview and how you can advance your training to make your students more effective performers and more adaptive decision makers. As a reminder, all the research reports or articles mentioned in the podcast are made available to you at the Trainer's Bullpen website at trainersbullpen.com. Did you know that you can also subscribe to The Bullpen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify? But we encourage you to subscribe so you get alerts about new episode drops. Thank you for your dedication and for your commitment to officer and public safety.